Well, there is a lot of love between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about that too much. Right at the top, I'll talk for about 30 seconds about that because it's driving me a little crazy. We'll talk about Kevin McCarthy and the speaker's race and Matt Gates. I work directly with Matt Gates in the White House, and he's somebody who's become a friend. Actually, I spoke uh, right after him just a couple of months ago at an event for the Martin County GOP down in Florida. Uh, and he is uh, a fantastic future leader of the Republican, current leader of the Republican Party. We'll talk about that. We'll talk also about defunding the police and a new report by Our America. That's right. A new report saying that this is shocking. I'll just not that I want to ruin the punchline over here, but defunding the police does not help crime. Can you believe it? Wow. What a shock. And students are not showing up to school. We've got new numbers on this and we have to have some new solutions because guess what? If students show up to school, they don't get no smarter. That's right. They don't get no smarter. That shows how much I showed up to school. But Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, they are a love couple. And I just, the only thing I'm going to say about it is this. Very simply, there is no way that this is organic. Now, what I mean by that is this was 100% set up by their PR teams. Let me say 99%. Let's leave that 1% for the romantics out there. 99% this was set up by the public relations teams. Think about this. Taylor Swift has all kinds of new things coming out for consumers. She's got her tour, which over the summer was going absolutely crazy. They talked about just to get in the building. It was $1,500, $2,000 just to actually see her from the worst seats in the place. And if you've noticed, Travis Kelsey has had three new commercials that have come out in the last month, including one where he is championing taking the COVID vaccine along with the flu shot this year. All happening in the last month, right when this big announcement ended up happening. So I have a lot of trouble believing that this thing is organic. Okay, I don't want to spend my time talking about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. You get plenty of that. You can hear that wherever you want. And there's going to be a whole much more analysis on Taylor and Travis for the weeks. I I don't think months because I'm not sure if they're going to make it months. But for the weeks ahead, I do have faith that they'll make it weeks and weeks ahead. Well, one of the things that has caught my attention recently is a new report by Our America, an advocacy group, actually a a Hispanic American advocacy group that says the defund the police movement has destroyed cities in America. Okay. We've been saying that all along. That's not anything that's new to us, but anyone with Any kind of common sense knows that if you threaten to completely defund the police, along with taking away their qualified immunity, and add into that recipe district attorneys who won't prosecute, guess what? Here's the shocker. Crime is going up. Let's put some numbers behind that, though, right? We all knew this. We knew this a long time ago, we knew this three years ago, we knew this four years ago, five years ago in New York, when they started to try to pass cashless bail in New York, right? Remember, New York 
got into the defunding the police movement before the rest of the country. We started cashless bail in 2019 over here. 2020 is when other cities started going crazy with their stuff in the wake of the George Floyd riots. So here's some of the stuff behind this. And what Our America ends up doing is they highlight five mid-sized cities. So it's not New York, it's not Los Angeles, not Chicago, not San Fran, not the big cities that we normally like to focus on. And I understand why we focus on New York. And it's for good reason. But it's a different look at this. They looked at Pittsburgh. They looked at Tucson, Arizona. They looked at Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They looked at Henderson, Nevada. And they looked at Atlanta, Georgia. Now, I would say I think Atlanta, Georgia is one of the 10 biggest cities in the country. I wouldn't call that a small city. But the very interesting thing about this, and they don't even talk about this in their write-up or in their article, but think about the cities that they've looked at. Pittsburgh, Tucson, Milwaukee, Henderson, which is just outside of Vegas, and Atlanta. What do all five of those cities have in common? They are in swing states, really purple states. Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania. Tucson is in Arizona, Milwaukee in Wisconsin, Henderson outside of Vegas in Nevada, Atlanta in Georgia. All of these states were decided by one and a half percent or less, some by thousands of votes last time in 2020 and likely will be very, very close again. So it's fascinating to pay attention to these cities rather than just probably the New Yorks, the L.A.s, the Chicago's, the San Francisco's, because those states, for the most part, are decided. We know which way California is going in 2024. We know which way Illinois is going for Chicago. We know which way New York and New York, New York is going. So this actually focuses in on those cities in these swing states that are still very much in question. But. The report in focusing on these five cities, these five mid-sized cities and Atlanta, says that they have seen elevated levels of crime since 2020 when the George Floyd riots, the summer of love. Remember the summer of love? Remember the MSNBC shot where you had, I can't remember who the reporter was. Not that I memorized my MSNBC reporters. I actually enjoy hitting myself uh, in the head with a hammer more than I like to memorize my MSNBC reporters. But remember when he said it's just a mostly peaceful protest. And in the background, in the back shot, you had a blaze a fire going on. Literally this building being engulfed by flames. Yeah, probably not the right shot right there. Your narrative doesn't quite line up with your background. Have a different shot right there. But anyway. The summer of love, the 2020 Floyd riots. It was the summer of chaos. No love, all chaos. Now, this report highlights, and I'm going to quote the national director of Our America, Gabrielle Natalie. This report is highlighting cities that are being ignored by the mainstream media. Oftentimes when we talk about crime, we hear the conversation about New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, L.A., The reason the media often ignores many of these cities is because it is not good for their narrative. They want to make sure that everything is going fine. When you look at cities across the country, things are not fine. He's right about that. The only thing that I would disagree about is the point that the media are not focusing on these cities because it doesn't line up with their narrative. Uh, I think 
it actually does line up with the narrative that the Our America group is talking about right here. I think that they know that crime is a disaster all across the country. So I think actually he missed the point of their own survey here. Needless to say, even with that, though, I think it's a very good survey. And I think really what they should have talked about more is the fact that these are the cities that they look at with November of 2024 getting closer and closer, now 13 months away, these cities in these swing states where you're going to have voters in there that are going to be deciding whether or not they're going to be choosing Biden or maybe it's Newsom or whoever else ends up being the, the Democratic nominee or Trump, right? We're going under the assumption that Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. So going into these numbers in these cities, because we know the New York numbers, we've seen them. We've seen the struggles that New York's have. You see it with your own two eyes. I need to tell you. Last year, Pittsburgh reached its highest number of homicides in decades, 71 murders. Pittsburgh also saw a 46% increase in shootings from 2020 to 2021, nearly 50%. That's Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You guys remember what happened in Pennsylvania in 2020? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Tucson, which is in Arizona. Actually, Tucson's really only less than an hour from the border, 60, something like 65, 70 miles or so from the border. Saw 67 homicides in 2022 and a 20% increase in non fatal gun, gun crimes. And gun violence, drug abuse, and homelessness all increased in Tucson, Arizona. Those murder numbers up 35% in Tucson, by the way. Henderson, Nevada, which is just outside of Vegas, about 20, 25 minutes. But it's actually the second biggest city in Nevada to Las Vegas because the suburbs of Vegas have grown so big. I actually know a few different people from Henderson, Nevada. But it's a place where... It used to be kind of a purple place. It's kind of swung a little bit more blue recently. Um, but it's one of these places where if they see crime continue to go up as they are right now, with robberies jumping by 91% during the first seven months of last year, assaults nearly doubled in 2022, assaults, then you're going to have Nevada voters that are going to look and say, was my city safer during... Donald J. Trump or Joe Biden. Now, I know you have local politics involved and all that, but at some point there is a push in these cities to look at the chief executive of the country. Now, in Atlanta, which again, I don't know why they included Atlanta in there. I get it. It's a swing state city. They don't mention that it is. Really, that should have been the title of this article, that the swing state is up significantly. How will this affect voters' decisions in 2024? They are the researchers, and this is a good study, even if the summation may be a little bit off. In Atlanta, burglaries increased by 31%. Motor vehicle thefts up 22% in 2022 from 2021. 
And aggravated assaults also increased. And this number is actually quite astonishing. Aggravated assaults in 2021, 970 in Atlanta, Georgia. So less than 1,000. Now, 2022, last year, 3,465, a 400% increase for aggravated assaults. By the way, I think Atlanta went something like 79% for Biden. You wonder, if Atlanta swings and it goes 76% for Biden, then Trump wins that election. So does that have an effect? And Milwaukee, which, let's give Milwaukee the big award, wins the title of leading the country in car thefts. Up 111%. Overall crime is up 22% from 2020 to 2021. Now, our America, who conducted the survey, says that there are two factors. The defund the police movement with the Floyd riots, which in turn pushed politicians to pass police disabling legislation in the second half of 2020 and in 2021. And I mentioned before, New York was very early to that, right? We can, uh, we can say between <laughs> the cashless bail and, oh, I guess the cashless bail and uh, Alvin Bragg kind of sandwiched the Floyd riots. But let's just take the cake for cashless bail. 2019, you had cashless bail that was passed in New York. Cuomo championed at the time. You had the radical assembly and state senate up in Albany that pushed for this, that celebrated this, and you saw crime start to increase, go up in New York City. And what I can tell you in my run for governor, the thing that I saw was this is not just a New York City problem. Last year, Binghamton and Rochester, both Binghamton and Rochester had the most murders in their recorded history. This is a direct, direct result. And the second factor are the prosecutors that are failing to properly address crime. Look at Alvin Bragg, perfect example. Something that sends the wrong message to criminals is what they say. Here's another quote. What we need to do is get safer streets and brighter futures to increase the number of police officers that are patrolling our streets and also encourage and demand prosecutors follow the law and prosecute even smaller events. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like broken windows. Oh, my goodness. Something that actually worked. Not just in New York, by the way. New York was kind of the, called the test dummy for broken windows, right? We were the test place for broken windows. And it worked so well that they started applying it in other cities, in other areas, in the Midwest. They started actually taking it to Los Angeles. Remember, Bratton went out there and was commissioner of L.A. and actually saw some progress in L.A., in Boston, where they saw crime get reduced by a significant amount. I think the number is like 45 to 50% in Boston. It wasn't quite as much as New, as New York, but it went down, I think, nearly 50% in Boston. And now, here's a fascinating statistic that came out of this study, and this is really kind of the thing that caught my attention more than anything. A police force that adds between 10 and 17 officers can account for one additional life saved 
from violent crime. So you can then deduce that reducing a police force by every 10 to 17 officers probably results in one more additional life not saved, dead from violent crime. Direct correlation right there. Now think about what New York is going through right now. And this is, to me, one of the scariest things that I think is not really being talked about. When you look at all of the police, the NYPD, that are retiring right now, that are hitting their 20-year marks, the biggest law enforcement classes we had were right after September 11th, the five years after September 11th, 02, 03, 04, 05, and 06. We, the NYPD, in those years, would graduate 2,000 academy cadets a year into police officers. 2,000. Now we're getting between six and 700 that apply to the point where we've completely taken the standards out. No mile and a half test. You guys all know this. But think about what that's going to mean just by this. If you're talking about let's say 12 to 1300, 1400 maybe, less officers a year. If you end up doing the math on this, you're talking about 100 more ballpark lives each year, according to this study, not saved from violent crime. That is the problem that New York is going through right now. And the other conclusion is, The crime has been going up, but only for the last three years in these five cities. Crime was in decline in each of these cities prior to 2020, followed by a sharp rise in the second half of 2020 into 21-22. Now, you could argue they cherry-picked these cities, and that may be true. I, I don't know. But these numbers are telling you exactly what we've been seeing with our own eyes. Defunding the police... Rogue prosecutors. Complete disaster. Complete disaster. Speaking out of disaster, actually, this is actually a little bit of a funny story. This is a little transition here. Actually, probably the wrong word to use with this. So today, I'm walking, actually, with my morning coffee. I got up early today, listened to Sid from like 6 to 6.20, and I had a call at 7 o'clock. So I go down, I get a coffee, and I just kind of walk around and clear my head. I want to focus on this thing here. And uh, actually, no, I'm mistaken about my timing on this. This was after the call because you had school children. This had to be about 930 or something like that when I had my second morning coffee. (laughs) So I'm walking outside and I'm walking kind of by Stuyvesant, but there's a public school. There are a couple different public schools on both sides of West Street down there. And I see a woman with no bra on where their nipples were completely sticking through the sweater. Now, look, I'm a heterosexual male. I saw that and I took note. I'm a very happily married man, so all I did was take a look over there. But here's the thing that pissed me off about it. And this could have been one of the mothers, but I think it was one of the teachers walking with about 15 children back from the park to the school. So you see these kids, they're probably six or seven years old, and they're about 15 different kids or so. 
And I saw this woman, it was an attractive woman, right? She wasn't bad looking at all. I'm not saying that. And that's really not the point. But her nipples were sticking through the sweater so obvious that she was not wear, wearing a bra and it was clear as day. Now, this wasn't like some event that she was going to where that would be appropriate or anything like that, if that even was appropriate. But, you know, there's some events where, you know, you dress a little bit, a little bit different. She was with school children. Kids should not have to be exposed to that. That's not a good example to children at all. Uh, look, when I was a young boy, I probably would have been pretty interested in seeing that. I'm not going to lie over here. I'm not going to tell you that I'm a, I'm a choir boy because I'm not. But it's just not appropriate for school. It's just not. Remember the Canadian guy who uh, worked in the wood shop with the massive fake breasts? Remember those? Yeah. Yeah, craziness. Craziness. Well, speaking of craziness, one of the big stories of the last week or so is the Kevin McCarthy ouster. We have no Speaker of the House at this point. And one of the things I've heard a lot is Matt Gates is crazy. He's Matt Gates is a traitor, and, and it's uh, what, what Matt is, is doing is terrible for the country. And look, I want to be very clear on this. I'm a little biased toward Matt. I think uh, I got to know Matt Gates while he was in Congress. I actually saw him, as I mentioned before, in Florida a few months ago. I spoke right after him, which is actually one of the toughest people to speak after I've ever had to do. Um, on the gubernatorial trail, I had to speak after all different types of people, all the other three candidates that I ran against, um, other former governors, um, hell, even my father. And speaking after Matt Gates in Florida was one of the toughest things because the guy is, he is so intelligent, but he knows how to convey the facts in a interesting way. Remember, it's very difficult to be able to match that. That's the thing that DeSantis is struggling with, right? DeSantis, we think, has done a very good job down in Florida, but he is one of the most boring people to ever listen to. Gates is very good at this. So I've heard a lot of people say, well, Gates is crazy. Gates is terrible doing this. But I, I want to say this part about this, right? You think about the fact that CRs in Congress hasn't passed a budget in 27 years. That the House of Representatives, which is where spending originates, and that's right in the Constitution. And we know that spending is completely out of control. And instead of curbing it, we're continuing to spend more and more and more on foreign wars. While Americans continue to get squeezed. To me, Matt is standing by his principles. And I think he is an extremely important part of the conservative movement. He's extremely bright. He's extremely well-spoken. I know there was an accusation against Matt, but it was one that was completely unproven and uncharged, by the way, and uncharged. And in this day and age, you can have all different kinds of accusations pushed against you, especially by political opponents. And Matt has political opponents on both sides. He certainly has made a lot of enemies in the Republican Party as well. But Matt understands that he's going out there and he is representing his constituents and their problems that they have with Washington, D.C. Now, one of the things we can talk about is what is the role of the Speaker of the House? And this is where you can look at Matt and say, okay, look, this is probably somebody that does not align with Matt's ideological 
beliefs, the ideologue, we'll even just say being an ideologue, right? Nancy Pelosi was a massive, massive partisan as speaker. I know that when you had the AOCs of the world, she, you know, supposedly pushed back a little bit against the squad. But until the squad came in, she was as left as almost anybody in Congress. The squad just made her look a little less partisan, but she was very, very partisan as a speaker. And you could say Newt was partisan as a speaker as well. So this might not be Nancy who started this. This might go back to Newt. But before that, the speaker really is a role where compromise was championed. Now, that pisses off some ideologues like Matt Gates, And sometimes it even pisses me off, right? And I understand where Gates is coming from. You think about, on the left, Pelosi, Hakeem Jeffries, Schumer. These are all extreme partisans in leadership. So he wants a strong conservative voice as speaker to counter that. He doesn't want somebody who is going to look at compromise and say, well, you know, compromising with the socialist is, uh, you know, it still might not be enough to save the country. It might take longer. Now, it'll mean more gridlock, but Washington is broken. And maybe what Washington, D.C. Dems need is a dose of their own medicine. So I think that's where Matt Gates is coming from. Look, do I necessarily agree that this is the right tact? I don't know. I think that I would love to get back to a place where Speaker is a compromising position, but that's also going to have to come from the left as well. That can't be something that, and this is one of the things that Republicans in D.C. have done too much over the last 20 years, uh, and this is one of the things that people love about Trump, is that, you know, as the Democrats pull the country left, Republicans say, okay, we need to compromise, and because of the media pressure on Republicans making them look like the bad guys, The compromise then gets further left, further left, further left, and so that's kind of how it's moved. So you might need somebody who's going to hit that back from the right there and say, no, 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 no. Hey, we're not going to lose our principles over here. If we compromise with the socialists, that compromise might not still be good enough for the American people. So I understand where Matt is coming from over here. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I would like at some point in the future for the speaker's position to get back to a place that champion, that really champions compromise. But the left is not looking to do that at this point. And that's why what Matt is doing is, I think, important. And I support Matt. Okay, one final thing on the show today over here that is very close to my heart, because as you know, my daughter Grace is... She's not in school yet, but, you know, I keep thinking about it. It's something I think about almost every single day. I'm not going to lie to you and say I think about it every single day. There are a couple days that go by where I don't think about it, but I think about it on average, let's say, five or six days a week. And then there are some days where I think about it like ten times during the day. 
So I saw this editorial in a publication that you know, I think has gotten a little bit left, but I think it was a pretty good editorial. And I think on education, he's been pretty good. It's Bloomberg News that asked, why aren't American students showing up? Districts must impose accountability and reduce chronic absenteeism before it's too late. Now, we all know how bad the learning loss has been in the United States. We basically lost 40 years of gains over the last three years. Now, according to the editorial board, the biggest challenge might be just the minimum, which is getting students to show up. The rates of absentees have skyrocketed since the beginning of the pandemic. In the 2021-2022 school year, 28% of school children were chronically absent. Means missing at least 10% of the 180-day school year. That's what it means. Missing 10% of the 180-day school year. So 18 days. That's chronically absent. 28% of school children nationally were chronically absent. Before the pandemic, 15% of kids were chronically absent. That was like Kevin. Kevin was one of those kids, producer back here. He was chronically absent right here. He's he's even ab- he's sitting there, but he's still absent. I could see it in his eyes right there. He's no, no, he's with us. He's with us every step of the way. So that number has nearly doubled from before the pandemic to after the pandemic. 15% of kids before, now 28% of kids chronically absent. But it's even worse. These chronic absenteeism numbers are up even more in urban school districts. 40% chronic absenteeism in New York City. Similar numbers in LA and Chicago, about 40%. In Detroit, 77% of school children are chronically absent, over three in four. Think about that. Now, what does that mean? That means that inner city kids are missing what should be Valuable time in the classroom, which means less opportunity for them in the future. Not developing the skills necessary to have the potential to be successful. Now, you you could argue that many of these schools are so bad right now that these kids might have a better chance of seeing success getting into the real world early. But, but not at 9 or 10 years old. I think a lot of the BS that's being taught at school right now is truly disheartening some parents. Those that don't have the resources to send them to other schools might lose faith and say, you know what? We're just not going to send them to school. If you're going to learn, if Jimmy's going to learn that he could turn into Jimma, and if... Kevin's going to learn he can turn into Kevina, you know, and vice versa. Then what are we doing sending these kids to school? But here's the real problem, and it gets to this toward the end of this, and I think it's it's very important. There are two suggestions that really hit the mark. One is to roll back the COVID-era policy of submitting assignments online. That's like the mail-in voting of school. Think about that. You, You don't know if the student is actually doing the work or copy and pasting, right? You don't know that. So when you think about submitting assignments online, that's just like copy and pasting, basically. That's not going to work. 
Plus, they don't get the human interaction. And that, to me, is one of the most important part of schools. It's learning how to interact with your peers. And second, and this probably is the biggest of all of them, and really at the crux of it all, expand merit-based pay for teachers and boost incentives for top teachers to teach in poorly performing classes. If kids do better, then they show up. It's that simple. But the second part about that, the merit-based pay, teacher union will never have it. Because of that, our students will continue to get unmotivated bureaucrats as their teachers rather than motivated and performance-evaluated educators. So that's why, ladies and gentlemen, we need to make sure we have school choice for our kids. We need to have as many options as possible when it comes to school. That's why I'm a big believer in tax credits. That's why the states that are doing it well are pushing the tax credits out there. And I'm going to keep on fighting for our kids over here because I got a little one. Look, America's kids are too important. Okay, my friends. Well, look, I look forward to next week with you. I love you. And we're going to keep on fighting the good fight over here on The Andrew Giuliani Show. Yeah.